To make it in cannabis, first you must dare to. 12 years ago, MJ BizCon dared to unite the global cannabis community, igniting a movement that continues to thrive. The wait is over. Let's grow together this November 28th through December 1st in Vegas. You'll hear incredible stories, see groundbreaking innovations, and forge connections you need to thrive in 2024. But wait, the clock is ticking. Get your tickets by September 28th and save up to $200. And here's a secret. Podcast listeners get 10% off with promo code 23POD10. Don't miss out. Get your tickets at mjbizcon.com. That's mjbizcon.com. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today with us, we're going to have Michael Nistorescu. He's the CEO of Canaverde Pharma. Uh, you're based in Toronto, but your operations are in uh, in Latin America. We'll talk about that a little bit. First off, tell me how you got into the industry, kind of your background, how you got into the game. Will do. Uh, perfect. Thanks very much for having me today. Um, so as you mentioned, I am the CEO of a, of a cannabis company that's can Canada-based, but we have all of operations in Latin America. So we have for for the latter for the last part of the four three four years, we have we have focused on Latin America. And I basically started in the industry. I started in finance, um, and about three and a half years ago, I was approached by a very dear friend of mine. Um, to get into the cannabis space, specifically to look at opportunities outside of Canada uh, as they've developed into Latin America and, and, and other jurisdictions. My personal connection to the space is, is through my mom, uh, which has started using CBD-based products to, to deal with a variety of ailments. So I saw the power of cannabis as it relates specifically to uh, people that are a little bit older, people that don't want to uh, have these all of these pills and all these prescriptions by the pharmaceutical companies. So we started with um, CBD uh, as a way to aid sleep and for back pain. Um, so as I learned more about the industry and as we developed uh, the industry here in Canada, um, I really thought about the power of the cannabis plant and how it, it relates specifically to pain medication and to a lot of other conditions. And we decided to, to look at the opportunities and, and see how that evolves into an actual company. Um, so that is, that is my background into the space, um, but I do have a finance background. Um, so I did work on the investment side of things for two very reputable organizations. Um, and then I thought that I have the, the background there as well as the, uh, the ability to, to, to see how we can um, give cannabis to a lot more people uh, through Canada and, and the rest of uh, Latin America. I think that's an, an interesting, unique lens. So I'd like to have you just kind of unpack your history a little bit, because I think it's really relevant to the industry now as it's kind of maturing. In the beginning, you had a lot of entrepreneurs who weren't really grabbing teams and, and having maybe the most professional of advisors and a cabinet, you know, a board. Um, yet you kind of come from, from a, a traditional background uh, of investing. So what were you doing? Because I'm seeing that now finally companies are bringing CFOs on board, starting to kind of make more sense with some valuations. We're a little bit late to the game, but better late than never. So all in all, I think it's really important with valuations, with uh, you know IPOs and, and just uh, normalizing the industry to bring traditional finance to the game. Banking is super important, still not here yet. 
So with your background, I think that's really relevant to kind of the expansion, the internationalization, the commoditization and normalization of cannabis. Tell me a little bit about that background, how, what you were doing and, and how it's helped you maybe in the industry. Oh, absolutely. So I, I think it's very important to note that we are building a company and we are focused on the power of the cannabis plant and, and how it relates to applications to specific conditions. But at the same time, we, we, we need to build a company and we need to build it properly. And I think having people with the finance background to be able to um, properly budget, to be able to properly expand, to be able to look at the regulatory risk, and also to be able to, to have the, the ability to um, properly finance and properly set companies up. I think what we had at the very beginning is that you had a set of individuals who were in the cannabis game prior to legalization on the medical side. Um, and you had these individuals start all of these companies. And I think with any success of industries, the management needs to be professionalized. We need to have people in place that can um, look at the valuation of a company properly, that can finance at, at valuations that are not astronomical. And I think what we saw at the very beginning of the industry is that anytime there is a brand new industry, specifically with the benefits that cannabis brings about, but not even on the medical side, but also on the recreational side, because of the fact that we as humans over the last three, 4,000 years, we've always looked at certain plants to be able to give us a euphoric um, uh, ability for us to go through life. And, and obviously life now is a lot more uh, difficult than it has been in the last 10 to 15 years. So I think it's very important that companies are built properly. And I think it's very important that we raise money and capital at, at valuations that make sense. Um, and I think it's very important that uh, when we set up these companies, uh, we set them up with the intent for them to be a self-sustaining organizations for years to come. And I think uh, my background specifically, um, I used to work in the, uh, in, in the hedge fund industry with, with a company called Gluskin Chef, uh, which has been around since the 1980s. And really it, it taught me exactly what it takes for investors and, and for fund managers, how they look at industries, how they invest their money. How do we, how do we approach certain things in terms of how capital gets allocated? How do we budget properly? How do we expand? How do we do a, a variety of things from a, a risk reward uh, aspect, but as well, how do we, we take into account regulatory risk? Because all too often in Canada and elsewhere, companies have built these massive facilities, but really haven't looked at how the industry has evolved, how the governments have, have put forth legislation to be able to do things. So really, we, we've spent so much money on all these facilities, and now it turns out that the facilities are too big, or we didn't take a lot of things into account, and we have to go back and, and really build proper facilities that match demand and supply. Um, so I think the professionalization of the industry is a significant uh, aspect into which we will then have other investors properly invest with the peace of mind uh, that the companies are set up properly and that we are, we are making decisions on a risk reward basis, um, not from, from anything else. Yeah, I find it interesting how um, public companies get so much speculation and private companies get so much scrutiny. There's a lot of due diligence that comes in with private companies um, some of the time. <laughs> I've also seen people that just don't do any due diligence at all and, and it's more of a gamble. It's a numbers game, right? Some are gonna win, some are gonna lose. I like hearing the fact that you're saying 
you're, you're wise with your money, that you're not going to be wasteful. And that's kind of one of the things with cannabis stocks and sense stocks generally is that it's harder to get capital. So you need to be less wasteful with that. Um, and I'm obviously not talking about Aurora and Canopy who have written off a billion and $3 billion. doesn't really give me confidence as an investor to put money into uh, companies like those, whereas someone like yourself, who's a little bit more responsible and aware of the difficulties and sounds like you're a little bit more appreciative and respectful of, of investor capital um, is obviously a good thing. Um, where are you looking at an investment? So from that lens, you know, in 2019, we were seeing multi-state operators really take off. There was some talks about cannabis lounges, but that's still not a thing. You saw a lot about um, data really being huge. I think Headset kind of took that and ran with it, and BDS Analytics and, and the like. Um, but you also saw some accurate dosing. So all those things from 2019 and all those investments, what's happened since the pandemic? Where is the mindset now? So if you can kind of tell us where you were targeting your investment and where it's going now, and maybe kind of tell us the difference and how some of the purchasing behaviors or trends during the pandemic have shifted some of that uh, priority. Yep, absolutely. So I think we started in the cannabis industry as a wild west where, where we, we had this powerful plant similar to um, similar to alcohol, for example, and that we, during the, the, the prohibition in the U.S. and, and elsewhere, we, we basically had now the ability of a lot of consumers to not only appreciate the power of the plant, but to really have access to it. So I think it started out where a lot of these companies were focused on cultivation um, and on bringing products to market, specifically as Canada was one of the few countries and, and obviously the biggest one uh, to legalize cannabis on a recreational side. But we figured out that it takes it takes so many different actors and players to really build a cannabis industry and and anywhere from real estate to software programs um, to to a variety of other ancillary benefits and ancillary businesses that we can have that are very, very lucrative in, in that sense of the word. And we have to. Um, imagine that prior to legalization on a large scale, specifically in the US and Canada we really were focusing on cultivation and, and ultimately the farming industry. And, and as more and more people get into the cannabis businesses and more square footage comes online, we are going to have um, a, a depreciation or a, a lowering of the price. And uh, obviously the, the diminishing returns in terms of every dollar invested in cultivation of cannabis. So I think it at all has changed now that um, a significant amount of U.S. states have gone into the in the, have have, uh, have gone over and they've missed the, completely the medical step, where they've gone from no cannabis whatsoever to complete recreational cannabis, mm -hmm. and now we have all these ancillary businesses that are creating. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of value for all these cultivators. And now we have the retail stores as well and the packaging and the distribution and all of these things come into effect so that we're able to look at companies now that have a lot less footprint when it comes to the dollar and can, can earn higher margins as we move away from having the ability to only invest in cultivation and only invest in extraction. Um, so obviously real estate plays a big factor, specifically as we've seen real estate in the distribution centers kind of blow up 
And now that we have easy money policies in, in pretty much every G7 country on this planet, we're going to have the ability of, of, of real estate to really play a part in, in each investor's portfolio. And then, of course, ancillary businesses that have to do with the cannabis plant um, also have, have a, lot of, a, a lot of elements to play within a portfolio. But now we have a wide range of investment opportunities, not only on the cultivation, on the extraction side. And I think that's been that's that's created a lot of jobs. That's created a lot of a lot of economic activity within the space. And we figured out that cannabis is something that is actually a lot safer than alcohol, um, and that we can have a lot of people. And and the delivery has changed as well. Where before the only way you can really consume cannabis is through smoking it. And obviously, you know, smoking has decreased significantly since the 1960s and 70s and 80s. But now we have gummy bears some that are only CBD that help for sleep. Uh, we have drinks so that if you go out with a friend and you prefer not to have alcohol, you can have a CBD or a THC infused alcoholic uh, beverage um, that matches the alcoholic side of it. So I think we have now opened the industry up to take advantage of so many different opportunities. And I think we're so early in the game uh, that all of these opportunities are gonna translate into billions, um, if, not, uh, if not more similarly to the to the uh, beverage company the alcoholic beverage companies mm -hmm. and shout out to jared alloway of uh cannabis is safer t-shirt so cannabis is safer than big pharma cannabis is safer than alcohol he's got all those shirts um can you dive into the market a little bit about uh latin america um give me like a little bit of an overview what the market looks like um is there going to be fomo because in the u.s we're looking at but hopefully federal legalization. Puerto Rico is this unique opportunity where CBD companies can go and pay 0% federal tax. So that's our opportunity to kind of go somewhere and utilize, you know, bilingual college educated folks at really cheap labor and no tax. I would think Colombia having the terroir and the labor would be a phenomenal opportunity being in Colombia, uh, being in Toronto, excuse me. Um, but there seems to be some protectionism in Canada. So maybe you can kind of explain how you can utilize international exports through Canada if or when they allow for that. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So I, I think when we started out this industry, um, there was a lot of regulatory risk and specifically barriers because we are dealing with a narcotic. And up until recently, the United Nations had um, THC and CBD and, and obviously the cannabis plant as a very dangerous plant. And obviously things are changing slowly, but obviously there were a lot of barriers to entry and you had to be localized for you to take advantage of opportunities. So as, as a Canadian, if you wanted to get into the cannabis space, whether through a license or, or uh, somehow else, you had to basically have a footprint in Canada, develop the business in Canada, and really not worry about the international markets at first. And then obviously the United States it being illegal on the federal level, kind of had you had less opportunities to be able to do stuff outside of the US in terms of the export markets. And Canada is a closed market in the sense that we allow for exports, but we don't do the same when it comes to imports, uh, because we have to remember hundreds of millions of dollars have been invested in Canadian companies to open up this footprint in Canada. So for example, the Europeans, they were only looking at supply coming out of Canada because Canada was the only recreational market and also the standards were fairly high. So most of the cannabis going into Germany either happened from Canada or from the Netherlands. So all of these barriers to entry 
um, were in place at first, and then we shifted and we looked at other jurisdictions because ultimately the cannabis plant is best suited to be grown, not in the greenhouse in Canada where it gets fairly cold, but rather in the climactic conditions of Latin America, similar to other commodities that we now import from those countries. Mm -hmm. So we had uh, at first Canadians who looked into Latin America and decided to put in hundreds of millions of dollars into all these facilities in Colombia, because we believe that Colombia and possibly Uruguay are the most advanced jurisdictions as of right now in Latin America. However, there was regulatory risk because as you get the standards up in Colombia, uh, you then have to send cannabis into Canada, which really the market was closed. And then you focused on Europe, which was a little bit more difficult because you needed all these standards like EU GMP certification. So in Colombia, unfortunately, as of right now, dry flour is not allowed to be exported. So basically one must export a finished product through a, a, an extraction process. But the extraction process must be done to standards that the Europeans are, are willing to import. That's EU GMP verification. That is very expensive and time consuming process. And then you have to have a European come into Latin America or Colombia and look at your facilities and give you the check marks for EU GMP verification. That is very difficult, very time consuming. And especially now that we're in a pandemic and travel has been, um, has been almost shut down. Um, that's been very, very difficult for a Colombian company to achieve. So really the market for the European was not, for the Europeans was not there for a country like Colombia, even though hundreds of millions have been invested in the country and all of these facilities have been built. But now, and, and this was two, three years ago, and obviously there was a lot of regulatory risk, but now Colombia looks uh, likely to put forth legislation that would allow for the export of dry flour, but also for the market in Latin America to become huge because we, we, we have almost 600 million people within, within the continent. We know that cannabis is uh, specifically suited for a lot of uh, the conditions on the medical side, but also on the recreational side. So I think in, in some time, Latin America is going to be a very, very big market, specifically because you're not growing cannabis in Canada that are very expensive and then having it to price in Canadian dollars as well. So let's say it's a dollar a gram, then you have to sell it for two, three dollars to make your margins. Well, in Colombia, it's 10 cents a gram, if not lower. So even though the Colombian and Latin American spending power is not similar to a Canadian or a US one, the cost of production is so much lower that you can decrease prices significantly and still make similar mar margins to what Canada or the US is doing. So I think as the market opened up, we're very, very excited about Colombia. We're very, very excited about Brazil, Chile, Peru, Argentina. I mean, there's, there's a lot of buying power there. And, and, and I think as the market evolves, um, and we've seen a, a change in the risk from a regulatory standpoint. We saw it in Colombia. We've seen it in Brazil as it's slowly allowing for the importation of CBD products. And I think once the U.S. legalizes cannabis on the federal level, I think the push will be for every other major jurisdiction to do the same. Although that may take a little bit longer than, than others, but I think ultimately there's going to be a massive industry for cannabis uh, but we're still deciding on what the export industry will look like. Um, because obviously, even in Europe, for example, Germany had two options. They had the Netherlands and they had Canada. But now it appears that Germany has a lot more options, specifically in Portugal, Greece, and Spain. So then we need to see how the export market develops. But our strategy from the very beginning has been focused on Latin America. 
not a focus on the US, not a focus on Canada, not a focus on the EU in terms of exports, but rather on the domestic market in Colombia. And then as the markets in Brazil, Chile, Peru, Argentina, and, and elsewhere develop, then we would be three to four years ahead, at least in Colombia, for us to be able to at least deliver those products uh, through that period of time. And are you guys going to rely on tourism? Is is the cannabis in Colombia a thing for tourism? I mean, I know there's a lot of good strains that come out of uh, out of the area, but I'm curious if it's going to be a situation where you know, like Nevada relies so heavily on tourism, what is the percentage of domestic consumption versus the tourism that you anticipate out of an area like Colombia? So we have to remember that Canada, Uruguay, and I believe 14 or 15 American states have recreational cannabis in the world. That's it. Everywhere else, it's medical. So we have not yet hit a point where, and obviously Mexico is very close to legalization, and that should be a further push to other countries in, in, in Latin America to develop their markets. But as of right now, I mean, there's no tourism, cannabis tourism in Europe. There's no cannabis tourism in Latin America. Um, and, and we expect it to be, but it's not there yet. But as a, just as an aside, Cartagena, which is a major tourist destination in Latin America, in Colombia as well, we anticipate that a lot of tourists will consume it, similarly to the way they consume alcohol. Uh, but we're not there yet in terms of taking advantage of that. We're positioning ourselves for it. Uh, but I think it's, it's going to be a little bit of time. That's why basically I mentioned at the beginning is that the U.S. skipped a step, really. Mm -hmm. They went from no cannabis allowed and it being on par with some of the most um, uh, dangerous uh, of, the, of the drugs uh, out there to it being a recreational state. And now all of these advantages are being taken away right away. That's not has, what has happened in other jurisdictions. I mean, Canada was a medical market for a long time, and then they then became recreational. But it was a long progression of steps for us to get there, whereas the U.S. has, has completely turned that upside down. But we do anticipate tourism to be a major factor in, in Colombia, specifically in Cartagena and other, other areas along Latin America. But I think we're, 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 we're uh, some time away from that. Is, it, is the price low enough to where it makes sense to grab, you know, for CBD, for example, to go and get some of that from Brazil. They have so many hectares that they're growing over there. It would, it seems to make sense to grab some of the, the hemp flower and then extract that in Colombia and use that for the local market. Is the price low enough to where I mean, we used to look at kilos at 15, $18,000 for an isolate or distillate. Now we're in like the three to $500 range. And I would imagine CBG and CBN and CBL and all those other more rare cannabinoids are going to come down in price eventually as well. Is it down enough though, to where you can import from a place like Brazil and mass produce? Are we there yet? Uh, we're not there with Brazil. So we have to remember that uh, Brazil is a laggard when it comes to cannabis uh, legislation. Mm -hmm. Just recently, they've allowed for the consumption of CBD and the importation of CBD-based products. But we have to remember that Brazil is, is behind, significantly behind, Colombia and other places in terms of cultivation and extraction. Um, so I think Colombia is probably 2016 is where they started the legalization of the medical cannabis. So it's been five years almost, where in Brazil, we don't have that. But I think Colombia is the best suited 
on the continent to take advantage of this. So you have to remember that Colombia is the second largest exporter of fresh cut flowers, the third largest of coffee and the fifth largest of bananas. It is, it is the climate is absolutely perfect for growing the cannabis plant. And not only that is that there isn't, and obviously some jurisdictions are better than others within Colombia, but where we are, the difference between January and December is very minimal. Same thing, the difference between January and July. So you really have all around growing, the land is fertile, the technical workforce is in place, not only on the cultivation side, but also on the medical side. Colombia is well known for its, its medical, uh, pharmaceutical industries, where we are located in Santander, that's the cluster of uh, healthcare in Colombia. And I think Colombia is, is the country that's best suited to take advantage of it. When Brazil wakes up and decides that this is something they, they want to get into it, obviously they're a gigantic country with 200 plus million people, uh, but I, I think they're probably five years away behind Colombia. Uh, so now what we're focused on is developing products and not only registering them properly, but taking them through the stability tests that are required for a country like Brazil and for us to be able to ship CBD-based products, finished products, to Brazil because they're not ready yet to put together uh, a, a CBD-finished product. Are you going to have any issues with other cannabinoids that we just mentioned? Early on in the segment, you mentioned, you know, your mom was taking CBD for sleep and back pain. And I'm wondering with CBG to kind of help with mood uh, elevation and, and relaxation simultaneously, if that's going to be a thing or CBL with pain, is, are you able to, because uh, the FDA in the U.S. doesn't really allow for claims, Health Canada has their own restrictions. What are your, you know, restrictions in terms of making claims with cannabinoids in a place like Colombia? Um, I would I would change that question slightly and say that regardless of the restrictions, um, we as a company, and this is a company policy specifically for Cana Verde, we are not going to make any claims without the proper uh, proof. Or if we are going to make any claims, we will state directly as to how those claims were made and why. And I think that's very, very important because there are, I believe, 113 of these cannabinoids in the cannabis plant. So obviously the sexy ones being CBD, THC, CBG is now getting some, some love. But most of the other ones haven't really been uh, properly dissected and sequenced, and we don't know exactly what they do yet. We do know that there's an entourage effect on the cannabis plant, that if we take out some and leave others in, then maybe that entourage effect decreases. But we simply haven't, and we have anecdotal research, and we have anecdotal evidence to show that. I mean, I didn't look at a, at a, at a medical journal to figure out that my mom should try CBD-based gummy bears and then give her that based on that. What we did is we, we, we obviously anecdotal evidence, and we figure out that it works. But the, the beautiful part about the cannabis plant is that it doesn't really, it, it doesn't kill you. So trying things out with CBD and THC and others doesn't really result in, in the deaths that would result from oxycodone or, or others. And it's not um, terribly uh, addictive like cigarettes or, or the painkillers. So we have the ability to basically use this anecdotal evidence as we have in the past. But specifically, I think we want to stay clear from making claims uh, that have not been proven yet properly just to use anecdotal evidence in, in place. And I mean, we can state on certain labels that 
there is evidence to prove that this is for this and this and that. And the consumer is now very smart because the internet has given us the ability to really search for what is CBD good for? What is THD good for? How do I start? Um, like for someone, for example, that, that's looking to get THC, obviously the higher you go, the more effect you have um, on the, on the uh, and, and we really need to, to understand what the consumer is looking for. But the consumer is savvy enough to be able to know that um, CBD works for a variety of conditions um, and that they should try it, specifically as we now have medical science starting to look at all of these things. And because it was so illegal in the US, most of the universities in the country couldn't have access to cannabis-based um, uh, to, to do their research. So, I mean, you had to deal with the DEA and who wants to do that uh, in order for you to have cannabis in, our, in your facility from a research standpoint. So um, I think we need to be careful as to what claims we make for now. Too many times companies have made claims and it hasn't worked and that has given the cannabis industry a bad name as other industries have. So uh, we, we, we like to be careful there and we should. Do you have any opinions on the recent FDA um, rules? And I'm putting that in quotes because it, it was just a bunch of information that really didn't give uh, the industry the information they wanted, which was about maybe Delta 8 or um, CBD beverages. Um, do you think that gives Canada and or Colombia, other areas, other countries opportunities uh, to get in front of the U.S. without some of those guidelines? Um, I, I think so. I, I mean, look, the FDA is a very powerful institution. And, and I think the world looks at specifically, so even now with, with the pandemic, the FDA and the European uh, health authorities um, and a few ancillary other ones, such as Canada um, and, and, and uh, the UK, they really have power to be able to set standards throughout the world. Um, and I, I think a lot of people look at the FDA for guidance. A lot of people look at the EU for guidance. Uh, but ultimately, there, there are other things that we can do. And, and, and other health authorities are a little bit more nimble than the FDA is to be able to allow for some things to happen um, and then see how it goes. Um, I think the, 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 it, it's important to note that um, we need the research behind what we're trying to claim and what we're trying to do. Because if we claim to do certain things and it ends up not being a, a proper claim or it not being based on actual evidence, um, then we really stand to lose in terms of how the industry develops. Um, and I think we have to do it properly. I mean, people can still consume some of these things because again, the consumer is very savvy nowadays. They have the ability to go on the internet and see certain things, but it's important to know that simply consuming CBD for a variety of conditions doesn't hurt you. Um, and you can try it out for now as you, we wait for guidance from the FDA, from the UK, from Europe and from Canada as to what is best place to do this. And I mean, we're doing this with vaccines right, right now in that we, we, they're, they're approved and we can use them and we think they're okay, but we don't really know what the side effects are within two, three, four, five years, uh, just because we haven't used it. So I think it's important to, to, to be more, um, to, to not rush things, uh, but I do think that the FDA should, should speed it up a little bit. I think they're going too slow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Is it also first mover advantages to have such low cost of goods sold? You mentioned 10 cents in Colombia per gram. It, that's that's obviously cost of goods sold. What is the retail and wholesale price estimates at this point? 
Um, so it depends how, how you use it. So basically, obviously, as you get into finished product, obviously, the it, it, we're talking about higher value in that regard. So I can I don't think we have the ability to have because, again, there's no recreational market. We can say that we produce a 10 cents or some, some other companies have made a five cent claim as well. But we really don't know what a gram of flour would be sold in a recreational market. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we have ideas about what the cost would be on the black market. But then again, there's so many things that factor into that. Scarcity. I assume there's an illicit market in Colombia. Is there any like equivalent to like $40 an eighth? Like what's, do you know what the illicit market is charging for cannabis at all? Or is well, so cannabis is, is a lot more expensive now because of the fact, or it, it used to be expensive because of the fact that it was frowned upon. And because of the fact that we have to remember that uh, even the US and others, they go from no cannabis, it's the devil, to let's allow cannabis now. So before that, when it was the devil, the price of it was very expensive just because of the scarcity, just because of the, you know, you didn't want to get caught by the police and all of those things. It didn't really truly reflect the market value of a gram of cannabis. We think that it's probably in the 70 cents to 70 cents range. So you're producing a 10 cents and you're selling for 70 cents on the THC side. I think that, that that's an okay estimate to be made. But if we were to look at finished products, for example, a CBD-based tincture, uh, I think that's probably in the $25 to $30 range. Okay. That's still a third or half of what they're charging in the States for a comparable product uh, for a tincture. Flour is still dirt cheap, if I can say that. Um, but again, back to Mexico going legal, Israel potentially being the third or fourth country to go legal. If Canada continues to try to manufacture or cultivate at $6 a gram and the U.S. can do it at a buck 50, uh, that's going to create a lot of, of pressure for Mexico to be able to do it for less than a dollar. So then you're already doing it for a fraction of that at 10 cents in Colombia. So when international uh, legalization is a thing, the World Health Organization um, and everyone else is, is already pushing for that. So yeah, if I'm going to put my dollars anywhere, it's going to be somewhere that already has commodities like bananas and uh, coffee, like you mentioned. So I don't understand why people are going to Jamaica. It makes absolutely no sense to me that just because Bob Marley's from there, that you're going to go there, especially U.S. companies that just bypass Puerto Rico and have no idea what they're doing. 100% of those businesses are going to be out of business because they don't even know what they're doing. Uh, that's my opinion, of course. Um, but with Colombia, that seems like a, a, a really good advantage. How can companies get involved in Colombia? Is there a lot of uh, legal loopholes? Is, is it a situation where, you know, if you don't have a strategic partner or um, a passport, <laughs> I mean, how easy, how difficult is it? Well, we, we have to remember that um, getting licenses is just a, a fairly simple process if you follow the rules and, and have the right people involved to be able to build those facilities. So that is the simple part. So basically it's just paperwork. You have a piece of land uh, that you now want to cultivate cannabis on um, and you put forth, uh, if you're a Colombian citizen and, and Canaverde is a Canadian company, but our, our, uh, we own 100% of Green Health Colombia, which is the fully licensed uh, cultivator, um, extra extractor, 
domestic distribution international export license holder. Um, so Canada is the mother company and then Green Health Colombia is, is basically located in Colombia. So if you're a Colombian citizen and, and obviously we looked very carefully as where we were going to put our money in Latin America. And we feel that Colombia's legal system is extremely strong. You don't have the coups that you would have or that we've seen in Venezuela. We don't have, I mean, there were, there were certain jurisdictions that we were scared of. And there were certain jurisdictions that we were on the fence of. And there were certain jurisdictions that we were very, very comfortable. The two, no, the two jurisdictions that popped up was Colombia and Uruguay. Those are the two that were very, very comfortable with the legal system. Because as a Canadian company putting in millions of dollars into that, you can't have the government come in the, uh, you know, tomorrow morning and go, okay, this facility is ours now. Um, so that's why we were very, very comfortable with Colombia as, as a place to invest. So if you are a Colombian citizen and you own a piece of land, then getting a cultivation license for CBD, which is non-psychoactive, is very easy. Um, as you go into getting a, a cultivation license for THC, that's a lot more difficult because it is a narcotic. It is not a recreational market. And even in Canada with recreation, we still have all of these loopholes to jump through to ensure that, you know, from, from physical security to software, to um, how you grow the cannabis plants, to what type of, uh, what type of ingredients go in there. So all of these things are provided that you can do them, you can get the licenses in place. The hard part is monetizing a license. Um, and that's always been, I mean, you have lots of licenses in Colombia that were given out, but most of those are for CBD cultivation, which as you mentioned, the price went from 15,000 to 400. So getting into the cultivation of CBD when it's really abundant doesn't make sense from a business standpoint. Um, and then getting into the TUC cultivation, well, okay, but now we have to take into account security and we have to take into account, for example, you have to have electrified fence around your property. That costs money. You have to have 24-hour security at all times. You have to have software who goes in and out of the facilities. So now really it takes more money to go into it. But then you have to do extraction because there's no dry flower in Colombia. Extraction equipment is, is expensive if you want to do it right. And obviously all the ancillary things that go with it in terms of the, the personnel that comes with that. And then you have to talk about how security and transport and all of these things. And then as you get into domestic distribution, international export, more and more money come in. The big problem that Canadian companies have had is that they went into early and they spent too much money. Mm -hmm. And that is why, so for example, if you are a visionary and you're five years ahead of where the government is in terms of regulation and legislation, and you invest money today as if you think that's not five years away, well, you're gonna end up sitting on a lot of these facilities because it just wasn't ready yet. And that's why we've had this negative connotation for Colombia because a lot of investors in Canada we're being told that you can now grow at 10 cents. We have these massive opportunities. The workforce is fantastic. The climate is great. And it is Colombia. And it's got this cachet of it being that country in Latin America, given its history of cannabis going back to, to uh, I won't say his name, but because uh, obviously that's, a, that's not something that um, we want to get into. But obviously, Colombia has a history of cannabis and a lot of strains. Um, so Canadian companies went in and they said, okay, we're gonna invest all of this money. They did, but now what? Because the regulatory, you have to remember 2016 is when Colombia legalized medical cannabis. It is only now that are allowing for the exportation of flour. Mm -hmm. So that, it took five years for them to just do this. Um, but obviously that was done in a time where 
the legalization push wasn't what it is today. We didn't have a democratic government in the United States with Chuck Schumer, who's pushing for the legalization of cannabis. Um, so, I mean, people didn't, we had, you know, the, the, the attorney general uh, was a, a, a red hooded Republican um, that, and you didn't know how states would react or what would happen if you actually uh, went in and, and uh, upheld federal law. But now we have Merrick Garland in the states that changes the equation of things. So now countries are more likely to legalize or are more country to speed up their processes because it's always, what is your neighbor doing? Oh, they're doing this. Okay, we have to do it as well because we don't wanna fall behind. So all this regulatory risk is now lower and lower and lower and lower than it was five years ago, three years ago and two years ago. So now I think that Colombia is going to be the place to do so but I don't think it's going to be for export to Canada in the short to medium run, because Canada, even though we're producing at four or five cents a gram here, the prices are high enough for cultivators to still make a margin. And especially there's barriers to entry in terms of no imports of anything other than medicinal cannabis. And same thing with the US. Um, so I think Colombia's best place for Latin America to take advantage of that. And as we evolved into other, into, into it being a, product that can be shipped around the world, um, then I think Colombia and, and Uruguay and a lot of these Latin American countries and even Southeast Asia make a lot of sense, but we're definitely not there yet. I, I don't see cannabis traveling uh, recreationally over borders in the short to medium run. And of course, that's my opinion. Right. So what, you know, what is your, your time frame then? Cause you're, you're very focused and I think that's phenomenal. There's too many cannabis uh, businesses that have this shotgun approach and they're incapable of focusing. You almost have a hyper-focus because I would think it would make sense for you to import your own product from Colombia and distribute it through, through Canada, but you're not even talking about Canada, the U S Europe, you're, I mean, not even really Latin America yet. You're just, you want to nail Colombia first and that's it. I, I mean, I, I think that's commendable just to focus on, on that. So one of the reasons we didn't think Uruguay was a place for us to do business in is because they only have just over 3 million people. Um, so obviously a domestic market is very small and the focus of all these companies must be international. Um, and then you run into all these barriers and you run into all of these regulatory risks, right? So we have to remember that um, up until now, Uruguay has been recreational. So they've been able to, and not only that, but they allow for the export of dry flour, something that Colombia has not allowed for in the last five years. So my question was, when we looked at Uruguay, is that why haven't more of the dry flour cannabis gone into Germany? because they can produce a similar cost as Colombia would. Um, so why hasn't that happened? It's because of the fact that the, the barriers to, to, to basically back then were very high where um, Columbia, Germany got access to companies in Canada and the Netherlands and, and Latin America wasn't on their radar yet, but now things are changing and then Colombia has 50 million people. So our focus is, is basically, we, we don't want to get into the regulatory risk and spending hundreds of millions of dollars to set up an international export company that may or may not take advantage of the opportunities. And then we possibly wouldn't know when those opportunities arise, because if I were to ask you, when can we send THC flour throughout the world and make an actual return on it? That question is not fully answered yet. I think we're a lot closer than we were three to four years ago. But again, 
like it being federally illegal for the US that completely gets rid of that market. And then basically we would be sending CBD to the US, but that's basically sending ice to the Arctic. There's gonna be so much CBD in, in, in the US and especially as all of these places come in, um, you know, the Nevadas, the Californias, you know, Colorado was huge in cultivation. And you don't think, when you think cannabis cultivation, you don't think Colorado, uh, right? But um, you, you think of all these climates that allow for, you know, 24, uh, 12 month um, cultivation. So I think now Colombia with 50 million people, Mexico legalizing, and we're only focused on two markets to begin with, and that's Colombia and Brazil. So that's 260 million people. Um, and that gives us a very, very large competitive advantage. For now, it focuses us. It gives us a clear path to revenues. We're probably, um, I would say, a quarter away from revenues in Colombia, like significant revenues, as we move into. And I think 2022 is going to be a massive year for us because we will have products for Brazil, and that's a, a large market with very little CBD-based products, and we will have taken advantage of Colombia on the medical side. So I think 2022 is gonna be a massive year for Latin America and specifically for us, for Brazil and Colombia. And then as we nail those two countries right, that opens up Peru, that opens up Argentina, that opens up Chile, that opens up all of these other opportunities because we did these two things right. So technically we're hyper-focused because of the fact that success in this hyper-focused state of mind allows us to be focused on all of the other countries in Latin America as well, once we really, once we really have these two countries uh, figured out completely and then we create revenues from there. So I think, I think that makes a lot of sense for us. Um, and we've built everything, we're fully licensed, we, we've done all of the legwork that we needed to do. And now we're ready to take advantage of the massive revenue potential that we believe um, are available in the country. And, you know, we're, we're talking about billions of dollars here. We're not talking about, you know, 30 to $40 million. And I think that's why a lot of the companies in Colombia and elsewhere, they haven't hit these revenue numbers yet, just simply because they weren't, Colombia and other jurisdictions were not ready. But now that things are ready, similar to uh, U.S. companies, um, you know, in the states that they were medical, they didn't have the massive revenues that they do now on the recreational side. And then Florida's medical, but they're still having hundreds of millions of dollars worth of revenues for these companies. So I think now is the time to be able to take advantage of this. And, and unfortunately, I'm a little bit disappointed in the sense that Canadian companies went to Colombia too early, investor lost a little bit of money. And now it basically, it put kind of this, 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 um, I'm not gonna say bad name, bad reputation on the country, but I think because all these companies were early and they, and they said things that didn't happen yet, it kind of drove people's eyes away from Latin America. When in reality, their eyes should be focused on there. It's gonna be an absolutely huge market. Mexico, when they legalize, that'll kind of make investors forget about all of the previous malinvestment in Colombia, I would think. Wouldn't you agree? I, I would think so. I mean, Mexico is an interesting jurisdiction because um, I, in Colombia, and obviously this is, this is something that a lot of investors talk about first when it comes to investments in countries like that. The question was, how do, how does, how do the, obviously because Colombia and Mexico being drug gang related, and, and obviously Colombia is not anymore in the sense that Mexico is, how does that relate to the safety of their investment, to the safety of, of other, country, other companies coming in and doing all this stuff? Um, 
in Colombia, we, 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 we didn't really have any problems with the cannabis cultivation. I mean, very little problems in terms of us dealing with the remnants of the drug war that has happened in Colombia uh, in the past. But I'm curious to see how that will happen and what will happen in Mexico. Because as, as it, and it has to be correctly handled as to where do you put this cultivation and how do you deal with the jurisdictions and obviously some of the, the drug gangs that we've seen, the violence that happens there. So I'm, I'm happy that Mexico invested. It was a country that we looked at, uh, but we decided not to have a footprint in Mexico as of right now. Um, and, and we'll see how that evolves. It's a but lot yes. of time after, after 2022 years. Yeah, only a matter of time. After exactly. you get to Brazil, after you get some of your CBD products and the medical in Colombia, when you sit down at uh, a marijuana lounge in Colombia and you look around, what is consumption going to look like? When I was in Amsterdam, there was a guy from Eastern Europe, I think maybe it was Romania or somewhere, and he asked me what the vase was for, the glass vase, and I explained that it was a bong. He said he didn't know what it was. And I thought he was playing along, you know, and I said, you can here, go ahead and try it. And he really didn't know what to do with it. So I knew that it wasn't him just asking for some free weed. He really didn't know what the bong was. And so it's always got me curious about how people, because uh, when I was in, in Asia, they like to use hash. Um, so there's different methods of consumption. How do people in Latin America consume? Is it mostly with tobacco like they do, you know, primarily in Eastern Europe? What is consumption going to look like when there are medical lounges? I think it's going to be a, a, a non-smoking product, if I can use if I can use that term. And I think I mean if, if we I've traveled extensively in Colombia, and Colombia is not really a smoking type culture. And I was I was pleasantly pleased to see uh, that very few people, uh, from what I saw, smoked um, tobacco. Mm -hmm. So that basically led me to believe that that I and and I think. Look, the, the best way to have uh, a high from cannabis is to smoke it, right? But now that we are getting more revolutionary in terms of the delivery of cannabis-based products, I think that we're moving away from smoking and into, you know, edibles and drinks and, and sublinguals and, and a variety of other ways to, to consume cannabis. And I think that within Latin America, that's going to be the way they do it. Obviously, old school, you wanna you wanna consume weed, you consume cannabis, you're gonna, you know, roll a, a, a cannabis joint and smoke it that way. But I think as kids and obviously kids or as, as younger adults, if I can use that, as they mature, I think you have all this vaping that, that's going on. So that's basically, you know, had an impact on, on cigarettes. And I think as we move forward and forward, I think it's gonna be more finished products uh, and the edible or the drinkable form rather than the smoking type mm -hmm. uh, as we evolve. Yeah, I'm looking at Arizona as, as probably a precursor, whereas Washington, we sell a lot of pre-rolls. Arizona is selling a lot of vape because there's still some stigma. I think being a border state right there with a lot of the violence in Mexico, there's that same stigma that Mexico has with smoking flour. So vaping, um, you know, it doesn't smell, you don't have that same stigma. So maybe if they do, um, you know, combust one way or another, either smoking or vaping, maybe that'll work. Um, edibles seem to, you know, you always have that dosing issue. So until they can get either the nano or um, accurate dosing or otherwise, I think maybe, um, yeah, we'll see a combination of, of either eating it or vaping it. Either way, it's a good thing. Um, 
more people that you can kind of get into a cannabis lounge, cannabis cafe, and and see kind of the window into the community, the soul into the the industry. I think that'll alleviate a lot of concerns and issues people have. Um, if we just kind of stay at home and no one sees it, it's really hard to normalize it. So that's kind of my hope with uh, cannabis lounges in the future. Absolutely, and 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 as it, it in 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 establishment and like restaurants and and bars and things like that. If you can go to a bar and have a cannabis drink and show people as well that, look, cannabis is not this thing that you do in the back alley and, and basically you're hiding from it and you get to have a, a more, I, I personally in, in enjoy, I would enjoy uh, a THC-based drink versus an alcoholic-based drink yeah. um, just because of, of the difference in, in the way your body reacts. And obviously we're getting much better at the microdosing aspect of it. Whereas before you can have a cannabis cookie and it can, you know, kick in six hours from now exactly when you don't want it to. Um, so we're, we're working at it and I think we are much a lot closer than we were before. But once we have it in, in stores and in, in restaurants, because we love to sit down, eat and have a drink. Well, as soon as that replaces that, then I think it's going to open up even more uh, possibilities for us as in the cannabis industry. All right, Michael, we covered a lot. Is there anything I, I left out that you want to touch on? No, I just, yeah, I think, I think we've touched on a lot of things. Um, I think a lot of more investors and, and should be looking at Latin America. Um, obviously, with, with the U.S. is going to be huge. Um, and I think there's going to be opportunities uh, elsewhere um, as well. And, and I think it's, it's, it's just going to be a massive industry. And we're just on the cusp of it. And, and as we evolve, uh, we're going to be uh, extremely, uh, we're going to be the pioneers, basically. And, and thanks very much for doing this. Uh, and for the show, um, and for for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you being on. I think there's a lot to offer. And I think, um, you know, I've, I've done a review on your pitch decks. And I think it's a very unique. Um, and something worth looking at. Now you're privately held, you're not a publicly traded company. Are you thinking about doing an IPO or a reverse takeover in the future? If uh, folks want to buy your shares? Is that going to be an option for them in the future? Yes, absolutely. So I think I think what we've done at, at, at Cana Verde is to properly set up the company such that we can take advantage of that. So from audited financial statements to opinions to everything else, we have all of those in place such that when the time comes, we can go public. And obviously market timing is important uh, and, and, and all of that has to, has to play in properly. And I think one of the things that we focused on Cana Verde is not going public for the sake of going public, but going public with revenues behind us to back up the valuation. Because a lot of the times where you know, companies that go public without revenues, we have to look at them as the present value of growth opportunities. And that takes a, a massive effect onto, is it gonna be big, is it gonna be little, is it gonna be thing? But I think we wanna set up a baseline valuation for the company. So revenues in the you know, five to 10 to 15 to $20 million range with margins that are fairly high give us a baseline valuation for the company such that we're able, when we go public, we don't go from, you know, 5 million to 30 million to 10 million to whatever it is, but there's an actual basis for an analyst to value the company properly and to be comfortable and sleep with that uh, specific model rather than us going public for the sake of going public without any revenues. And then the valuation is all over the place. So I think, I think we will go public and it will be soon. Uh, but now that we are on the cusp of significant revenues, um, now we're ready to, to make that decision and do it with the, the right timing in place. 
I respect the hell out of that answer. There's too many people that are pre-money valuations where I get decks to this day. It's 2021 and you want to send me a pre-money valuation. Um, it's just insane. So uh, more, more kudos to you for, uh, for waiting. All right. Um, well, so from, uh, you know, listeners that are in India or, you know, domestic and international from, from Colombia to, to Canada. And then that one guy in Azerbaijan that's listening, uh, how can they get a hold of you? What's your contact information? Um, so canaverdepharma.com is our website. Uh, my email is fairly easy. Michael at canaverdepharma.com. Um, and either send me an email. Uh, my contact information is also on the website. Uh, we have the deck. Um, on the website that one can download and, and all the contact is there. All right. And we'll include some of that in the description in the show notes as well. So with that, we're going to roll this one up. I want to thank my guest, Michael Nistorescu. He's the CEO of Canaverde Pharma. Michael, appreciate you being on the Talking Hedge. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is the Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your canna confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.